Shalom, shalom, holy friends. Wonderful to have you here with us today so we can learn together around the world um, with a great scholar today in Beit Shemesh, in, great, in Beit Shemesh, and, um, and with all of you wherever you are today and um, on a topic that um, has been foundational to Uri Litzedek's existence, um, thinking about the dignity of workers and our responsibility as employers. Um, and it's a great school to uh, introduce our, our, our teacher today, Dr. Rabbi Eliezer Lewis Finkelman, who received smicha at Ritz of Yeshiva University and earned a PhD in comparative literature at City University of New York, writing on the theme of Cain and Abel in the Romantic period. He served as Hillel director at Wayne State University and synagogue rabbi at Congregation Beth Israel in Berkeley. He also until recently served um, on the clergy team of Or Kadash in Oak Park, and he was teaching at Lawrence Technological University. As mentioned, he recently made Aliyah and lives now in Beit Shemesh in Israel. I can speak much more about him and his scholarship and his menschlichkeit, uh, but uh, uh, you know, in the interest of time, I'm going to pass it over to him. Our topic today is a worker can withdraw at any point. Laws protecting labor freedom. Now, my colleague Eddie is going to post the source sheet in the chat, so you can open that on your own, and, and we don't need to share the screen and distract uh, our faces. And you can open up that source sheet when he shares it in a moment. And Rabbi Finkelman is going to uh, present. You're always welcome to raise a hand or post a question in the chat, and then we'll have a time for Q&A and conversation at the end. Rabbi Finkelman, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much, Rev Shmuley. Um, I uh, really appreciate it. I'm kind of excited by the opportunity to address this audience. And um, I'm a little embarrassed that you describe me as a great scholar. Not so great. But I'm glad to be have the opportunity to teach what I do know. Uh, the topic for tonight is employers' obligations in halacha, the workers' right to withdraw, and the employers' obligation to pay promptly, and maybe something part, parts of the bigger picture that grow out of that. I want to start, let me describe what I want to do, and then I want to do it, and then when I'm done, maybe we'll be able to say, well, did I succeed in doing that? In this talk, I want to focus on these two narrow specifics of employment halacha, and then look at the bigger picture to show how they might offer a framework for evaluating workers' rights, and even how workers' rights fit into the broad picture of how, um, of how society as a whole ought to operate in the vision of the rabbis. And I want to do that all in one Zoom session. So let's go. In general, as has often been noticed, the Torah and rabbinic sources formulate halacha in terms of obligations rather than in terms of rights. So a talk about workers' rights grounded in Torah sources requires translation from the classical formulations which discuss employers' obligations. If you really want to think about this in depth, 
the conversation about this really begins with a uh, Robert Covers famous article, Obligation, a Jewish Jurisprudence of the Social Order, which is available online and, and is many times cited by people who agree with it, disagree with it, uh, take the analysis further. One piece of uh, Covers analysis that I remember is obligations and rights in a way are a different language for talking about the same things. If you say that the employer has an obligation to pay the worker, you're also saying the worker has a right to receive his salary. So it's just a translation of the same thing. But Cover discovers, pardon the pun, that um, that formulating in terms of obligation already implies a certain level of communitarianism. If I formulate what I can do in terms of my rights, I am looking out for myself. And if I formulate what I must do in terms of my obligations, then I am embedded in a larger society and I'm contributing to that larger society. But more, you should see the article itself. The first example I want to look at is, well, here we are, uh, Deuteronomy 24, 14 and 15. It says, Lo sa'ashok sachir. Do not oppress a day laborer, a, a person, literally a person who rents himself out. Aniva evyon, poor and needy. Uh, poor and needy is not connected to the sentence grammatically in any particular way. So it might be a description of the sachir, the, the worker who is poor and needy. Is it because he's poor and needy, or is it just a, a matter of course? In ordinary circumstances, day laborers who line up by the side of the road to get called to do work are generally poor and needy people. Wealthy people hardly ever do that. Me'achecha, uh, he's one of your brothers. He's one of your brothers. That already formulates employee relationships by saying the person who is working for the employer, um, did something change? Am I still broadcasting? Um, he is one of your brothers. Or, or he is a stranger who is in your land and in your gates. Is this particularly restricted to in the land of Israel? What about a stranger who's not in your... On his day, you must pay his salary. Do not allow the sun to set on it, on your, on his salary. Because he's poor. Va'alav hu nosei et nafsho. 
And for it, for his salary, he lifts up his person, his breath, his, his soul is a little anachronistic, but that's a good translation. Uh, he lifts up his self. Oh, the worker risks his life. He works hard to get his salary, so don't delay it. Or maybe he depends on his salary to support his life. Either way, that provides an explanation for why, for why you should not pay late. Velo ikra alecha el Adonai, and he will not call to God and it will be a sin on your part. Uh, if you don't pay him on time, you can count on the situation that he will call to God and it will count as a sin, as missing the mark, as a misdeed on your part. Um, in legal analysis of that passage, statutory interpretation, there's a positive commandment, pay him promptly, and a negative commandment, a prohibition, do not let the sun set on it. And then there's a rationale because he's poor. What if a rich person hires himself out as a servant? Um, and does the cat, even if the, does the rich person also uh, have to get paid on time? What if the Torah says he will cry out? Does that mean it's not a sin if he doesn't? No, that's impossible. It must be a sin even if he doesn't cry out. So why does the Torah suggest that he will cry out? And it says, the text says it applies to a ger. I already asked, what kind of ger, what kind of stranger? Notice, by the way, that the Torah characteristically addresses full participants in society. Mitzvot usually are formulated in terms of prosperous employers. You have to rest on Shabbat. And you have to let your servants rest on Shabbat. That implies that you are a person who has servants. It does not typically address commandments at women, with some exceptions, at day workers, at slaves. You can figure out what rights and obligations come to them, but it's not usually the way it's formulated. So what does it suggest that the Torah explicitly states the employer has to pay promptly, and it doesn't say what you might have expected. Give your employer a full measure of work. Do not slack on the job. Don't cheat your employer. That formulation doesn't occur in the Torah. I assume... I'm pretty sure the rabbis will get around to saying that a worker shouldn't take advantage of the employer, but that's not specifically formulated in the Torah. I think we can learn something from that. Um, uh, 
A similar passage shows up in Leviticus, in Vayikra. Lo sa'ashok et re'echa v'lo sigzol v'lo talim pu'ulat sachir yitcha ad boke. Do not oppress your fellow. Don't rob. And don't let the work of a hired hand, a hired worker, stay with you until the morning. The work of the hired worker, oh, it sounds like it's the same commandment again. I don't know why we need it again, except for one thing. The verse that we saw in Deuteronomy said, don't keep it, keep his salary until sunset. And this one says, don't keep it until the morning. Seems like a contradiction. Simple rec reconciliation would be, we're talking about a day worker. If you don't pay him right away, um, you have failed to pay him right away. You failed at the positive commandment. The negative commandment, the prohibition, takes effect the next morning after a full night of waiting. It's like an additional penalty. That would be simple, what the rabbis call pshat, straightforward reading of the text. But that's not the classical rabbinic interpretation. The sifra, the rabbinic legal analysis of the Bible says day workers and night workers. The day worker has to get paid before dawn and the night worker has to get paid before nightfall. That reading gives the employer an extra 12 hours to pay. I wonder why. I wonder why the Sifra read it that way. Uh, possibly, possibly because this is entirely speculation, entirely my own, that if we made the obligation require the employer to pay right at the moment that the man's work, the worker's work period ends, that would be kind of a, a fraction of a second in time when he actually has earned his salary and he has to be paid exactly at that moment. That would be uh, create situations where employers who are doing their job right could easily fall into uh, breaking the law. Maybe that's why they give the employer a little breathing room. Um, even so, even if I'm right about that, Rav, a, uh, an Amora, says, an early Amora, really at the, uh, at the crux when we stop calling people Tanaim and start calling them uh, Amoraim, that's to say he lived around, he flourished around the year 200, a little later maybe, says if the worker finished his, a day worker finished his job before the end of the day, then the employer actually has to pay him during the day. 
before nightfall. And if the night worker finished before daybreak, the employer must pay the night worker before morning. And that um, later authorities codify as the law. Um, interesting side point. The Torah formulates this in terms of day laborers and night laborers. Rabbinic interpretations, rabbinic authorities apply these laws to all rentals. The word schir, a servant who's working, uh, literally means rental. He's renting himself out. Rabbinic authorities apply it to all rentals. Workers, as we've seen, but renting an object, a boat, or uh, an animal. In all those cases, you have to pay on time. Um, so the question occurs to me, if the law applies to other workers and to other kinds of rental payments, why is it expressed only about laborers and wages? Um, note, by the way, it says... It says you have to pay on time. What about other debts? Shouldn't you pay other debts on time also? Uh, it would be strange to say that, uh, and it's wrong to say that you could uh, delay paying other debts. It sounds like the Torah is putting, it sounds like and it is the case that the Torah is, says, pay your debts promptly, of course, but wages Rental fees, according to the rabbis, but wages explicitly in the Torah are somehow an addition, more powerful claim that they have to be paid on. Now, in general, looking at labor law, and, and I'm speaking a little through my hat, I don't know this, but I suspect it strongly, everybody's label, labor law says whoever deviates is at a disadvantage. If you made an agreement to do something and you don't want to carry out the agreement, you're at a disadvantage. If you, nobody specified anything, but everybody knows what laborers are entitled to and what they're not entitled to, and you want something different, you are at a disadvantage. The courts or the well, the courts will not easily agree to, to giving you what you want. Um, contract law depends on enforcing the meeting of the minds. Penalties for any payment can be set by contract. Additional penalties for tardy payments. Oh, deviate from the general rule. Maybe they don't deviate from the general rule. I don't know what I meant when I wrote that sentence. Uh, the rule is if there's a penalty for a tardy payment, it should be in the uh, it should be either what's the standard penalty around town or what you put in your contract. Uh, incident, and, and that should be the case. If you want to know what the terms of employment law are just about everywhere, it's you know, look around, see what people do. Uh, incidentally, just for the fun of it. Uh, the Mish Mishnaic Hebrew idiom for being in the disadvantaged position, if you want something 
different from what you've agreed to or what's standard in your area is exactly a mirror image of the English idiom. The English idiom is who has the upper hand. And the Hebrew identifies who has yado al his hand is the lower hand, if he wanted to change something. Okay, so the Torah says workers have these special rights that uh, uh, beyond normal contract law. Does that imply some kind of economic theory of Torah? I, I am going to argue that it does. I'm going to make that argument when I'm running out of time. Right now, I'd just like to point out the Jews have survived under all sorts of economic conditions and adopting, adapting their halakha to the prevailing circumstances. So it'd be oversimplifying to say, well, halakha says we have to live in a socialist world or a capitalist world or a mercantilist world or anything like that. Torah manages to find some way to make its demands on us, whichever world we wind up in. Uh, Rabbi Soloveitchik highlighted, my teacher, highlighted the tension between, if you read the Torah's prohibitions of theft, you could see that the Torah almost, uh, almost makes private property a sacred right. If you take from someone else what isn't yours, that's uh, a severe Torah prohibition. That deep commitment to private property sounds like the backbone of capitalism. But at the next breath, he said, but look at Shemitah Yovel. Every seventh year, every 50th year, debts evaporate. How could that be? If private property is so precious, how could it be that debts evaporate? And Rabbi Soloveitchik said that's the Torah's great protest against capitalism, the cancellation of debts. So does the Torah believe in private property or does it undermine private property? Somehow both. Um, but within the, the, within the laws of Torah, we might have the ability to discern, to discern certain tendencies, certain... Uh, directions that the Torah is going in and appreciate the preferences within any system. So what do we learn from looking at those two laws that specify people who rent themselves out to do work? Clearly formulates employment law to obligate concern for the marginalized day laborer. If labor contracts are a subcategory of contract law, then requiring prompt payment amounts to a deviation from meeting of the minds to protect workers. Because you could have a contract that says, I'll pay you when I get around to it, but you do the work now. And it looks like the Torah says, no, don't do that. You got to pay promptly. 
So somehow it's it's got its thumb on the scale in favor of the day laborer and the night laborer. The thumb is on the scale, the preference, the imbalance, as it were, is to protect workers, especially the marginalized, the poor, the stranger, the people on the lowest rung of the economic ladder. We don't find Torah mitzvot that talk about special extra protections for the wealthy. And we do find emphasized in these laws again and again, the thought that the day laborer has risked his life for this depends on this for his sustenance and would have a legitimate claim to God if you pay him late. All right, that's the, uh, that's the first topic I wanted to present. The next was another deviation from mere contract law says workers may withdraw from employment at any time, even in the middle of a contract. So, so how does that work? I hired the day laborer. I told him how much I would pay for the day's work. And at noon, he said, I've had enough. I don't want to do this anymore. And he has the power to do that. Um, that's not... Um, that's not connected in an explicit biblical verse the way paying the worker promptly is, but it does have a biblical source according to the Talmud, according to the same Rav that we quoted earlier. The biblical source is that the children of Israel are my Avadim, Eved is a slave or a servant. They're my servants, says God. And the rabbis read that. Avad, or Rav specifically reads that. Avadim avadim. And not slaves of other slaves. Workers who lack the ability to quit resemble slaves. So the worker has the ability to quit. What does that impose? It almost sounds like formulated in terms of rights. I wonder what Robert Cover would do with it. But what obligation does that put on the employer? Simply, they receive their salary for the work that was done. And... Uh, that's based on the verse in the 25th chapter of Leviticus and Vayikra, that the uh, Israel Jews should not be treated as slaves. If we said to the worker, you promised to work all day and you will work all day, or you promised to work all day and if you quit, we're not going to pay you. Um, that, in a sense, is slavery. 
not not slavery you weren't captured and thrown into slavery but slavery because you made an agreement in the past now you're enslaved to it and have to do it at least for work that formulation of Rav's is the formulation that I've seen in many rabbinic sources. I did notice another Talmudic source disagreeing with Rav and coming up with a different explanation for the same ruling that workers can quit in the middle of the day. Um, and that is a kind of complicated analogy. An Evan Ivory, a Hebrew slave who works for a Hebrew master is collects his money in advance. He gets out of debt or he pays off for something he stole or something like that by, in effect, he's an indentured servant and he gets his money in advance. But the Torah is pretty clear that if someone comes to redeem him or he comes into uh, money some other way and can redeem himself, the employer does not have the power to say, no, I like, you know, I already paid for his uh, six years of work. I want to get the work. I don't want to take money in exchange for it. The employer has to take the prorated money. So if uh, if he paid $600 to pick a number for six years of work from an, from an indentured servant, and then two years into it, the indentured servant says, my uncle is ready to pay off the rest of the contract so I can go free. And he wants to give you $400, two years into the contract, six, five, four, four, four is the right amount. The employer is not allowed to bargain for more and is not allowed to refuse. He's got to accept it. And according to this Talmudic source, if you look at it, it's a kind of complicated connection, but if you look at it, that is, Similar to if a worker said, I'll work all day, I'll put in an eight hours of work for $8, uh, but now I've worked for two hours, for two hours and I've had it. He still gets his $2. And the employer does not have the right to say, well, if I only thought you were going to work for two hours, I wouldn't have paid that much. The analogy is complicated, but it, uh, it uh, apparently works. Um, there are exceptions to this rule that a worker could quit at any time. One of them is a kablan, a contractor. Contractor, I give him the material to, uh, to knit a sweater, He's not in a position to say, I'll give you half a sweater and pay me for that. Maybe he'll do it, but it's not included in the worker has the power to quit halfway through. A more interesting exception is a situation where the employer 
is kind of over a barrel. It would seem to be the prime moment when a strike would be a useful move. But if the work is really time sensitive, then the Mishnah records several cases where there could be a penalty for withdrawing. Uh, for instance, someone hires someone to bring flutes to play at a wedding. If the worker says, um, no, you know, I don't want to do it. That could be, a, that means no music at the wedding. That's a serious problem. Or a funeral. They used to play flutes at funerals. Or if the employer has flax in his wedding tub or cloth in his dying vat, or uh, several other examples of if the work doesn't get done now, things will spoil. Flax in the processing of linen, you put flax in a wet solution where the, uh, the organic parts that aren't linen thread fibers rot away, literally. And then you get the linen fibers out of there fast enough so they don't rot also. Well, once the employer has a vat filled with these things and they're starting to rot away, he needs the workers to come in. What if the workers say, and that's the moment they want to quit? The Mishnah is not so nice to them there. Um, there could be penalties for that. Um, that seems like the rabbis are sensitive to, okay, the Torah and the early rabbis built into the system a thumb on the scale, a little, a little prejudice in favor of the worker over the employer. But we also have to be sensitive to the needs of employers, and we shouldn't allow the employer to be exploited. Um, okay. Um, So one obvious theme that develops from this is that the Torah is interested in the power gradient. And the later rabbis are adjusting the power gradient. Um, under normal circumstances, day laborers, night laborers are um, people with little power and employers have the ability to exploit that power gradient, and the Torah warns us against that and doesn't, uh, beyond whatever protections anybody else has in the society. And the Mishnaic rabbis who are looking at the employer who has a vat full of linen are 
concerned with the power gradient there, which is suddenly shifted, and the worker has more power at that moment. Also, apparently, it doesn't allow the worker to say to the employer, okay, if I don't do it, you're stuck. You're not really stuck. You could do it yourself. Why do you have to hire someone? Um, okay, that's the, the those are the classical texts I wanted to look at. Then I want to look at a, uh, a complication of this. Does this apply under all circumstances, or does this apply only in the absence of a contract saying otherwise? Could you make a contract that says beforehand, I'm not going to pay on the Torah schedule. You're a day laborer. You'll work for me all day, and I'll pay you next Tuesday, a week from now. Can you do that? There's a category called making conditions against the policy of the Torah. Uh, generally, you can't do that. Um, contracts in American law that are against public policy can't be enforced. You can't go to the police station and say, um, I bought some illegal drugs from this man and he didn't deliver them to me on time. Arrest him for not carrying out the contract. Um, it's against public policy for me to be buying illegal drugs. Well, um, the normal law of matneo Torah, somebody tries to make a contract, but put a condition in it, which is against Torah policy, is that the contract stands and the condition falls away. So if a man says to a woman, be married to me on condition that I am not become responsible for your food, clothing, shelter, and conjugal rights. Well, the contract is valid and the conditions are not. They're married, but he is responsible for all those things that he tried to get out of. There's no option for being half married. Either they're married or they're not. However, what if instead of saying that, he says, be married to me on condition that I'm not responsible for your food, clothing, shelter, but I am responsible for conjugal rights. What about that? The rabbis in the top would argue about whether that can go through. And Rabbi Yehuda says that the condition does apply. That's to say, he is married, but um, he doesn't have to pay for her upkeep. How did that work? Well, Rabbi Huda says they're only talking about money. They're arguing about money. And in one analysis, I think a, a convincing analysis, Rabbi Huda says you can forgo monetary rights. After all, if they were married in a conventional marriage, and at some point she said, I don't really need you to be concerned about my food, clothing, and shelter. I could take care of that myself. 
Um, she has a right to do that. Um, not following the opinion of Rabbi Meir, who disagrees and says, even on monetary conditions, you can't change the Torah rules. So why am I telling you about marriage law? Um, what if you made the contract that the worker isn't going to get paid uh, when we expected him to get paid when the Torah said he should get paid? If Rabbi Yehuda's ruling is relevant, then you would say that all of this, all of the Torah that we've been looking at is unless they made a contract otherwise. Wouldn't that make our case kind of trivial? Like the employer has the a stronger position, has the stronger power. He just writes a contract that allows him to pay later. No problem. Uh, and what the Torah said would only apply in the rare case that the employer doesn't take advantage of his greater power. Well, maybe not. Maybe it's not trivial. And for that, I want to look at a recent work by Chaim Simon. Chaim Simon says, I had to say Simon says, can't avoid that, um, that law is not wholly concerned with the reality and practicalities of its rules. In other, in, especially in Jewish law, Jewish law has all kinds of areas. People study the Talmud about what kind of sacrifice would be brought in the temple if the temple were standing and the temple's not standing, so why are you studying it? More than that, people spend hours studying the laws of a uh, stubborn and rebellious son, and there's an opinion of the Talmud that there never was such a case. Or the laws of rulings about before the temple was built, where the tabernacle traveled and what kind of sacrifices would be brought in the tabernacle, and there's never going to be another tabernacle. Totally, theoretically interesting, maybe, but has no practical implication at all. At the other extreme, you would find what uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes said, that the purpose of law is to determine what a bad man can't get away with. A good man doesn't need law. He will try to do what's right. A bad man wants to know what he can get away with. And law tells him, you will get punished if you do this thing that's, uh, that's against the law. Um, so, the law, Jewish law, has vast areas that are mostly for what uh, Chaim Simon calls devotional purposes. We study them, but we don't put them into practice. And even areas of law that could be put into practice, long passages in the Talmud that talk about protections of the, the rights of the accused, the criminal trials, Whenever rabbinic courts have the power to punish criminals, do you think they used those theoretical? No, they didn't. 
because the laws to protect criminal defendants were so extreme that they would not actually protect the society against criminals. So the rabbis were forced to make up extrajudicial, he calls them sub-halachic, Simon does, uh, areas when it came to the practical law. Um, in other areas, the, the rabbis are quite um, concerned with reality and seem to be writing law that people will actually observe. But Simon writes, halacha is not unique in having legislation divorced from practice. Simon, in a section called How Unique Are the Halachic Codes, demonstrates that American law also has this phenomenon. His example is criminal procedure. Law students spend the whole semester studying criminal procedure, the niceties of protections for the rights of the accused, but in the criminal courts in America, 99% of the cases get resolved by plea bargaining. All of those rules are highly theoretical. And he could have given examples of laws against, this is me speaking, bribery and against insider trading, almost entirely unenforced, and some of them quite unenforceable under current practice. Lawyers identify a rule of recognition recognizing which laws get applied by coercive powers and which ones don't. And uh, an even more extreme example, if you pardon me using today's news, is the attorneys for Donald J. Trump said problems with the emoluments clause and the and the Hatch Act and certain other laws, he might have broken while he was president. But we have an advisory that the sitting president, the Department of Justice, can never charge a sitting president, on top of which he is now claiming, his lawyers are now claiming, he has something called absolute immunity for anything he did while he was president. So any laws that talk about what the president may or may not do are totally unenforceable if his lawyers win that. Um, so what's the point of having laws that are on the books that can't be enforced? Well, Simon thinks they are educative. The point is that you study this law and it conveys the feelings and the thoughts of the community that is invested in the law. And one becomes more and more sophisticated in understanding the law if one understands these highly theoretical cases that, are, that can't be enforced. And even in American law, the laws that can't be enforced are on the books because we want to express society's re revulsion and disgust at insider trading 
even though 99.9 cases of insider trading the uh, will happen without any penalty and without any serious effort by the Justice Department to to uh, enforce them. Okay. Um, all right. So now I'm ready for the conclusion. I said before I'm done, I was going to get to how does employment law fit into the broad conception of what society should be like, according to the rabbis? So um, I call this multo in parfum, which I think would be a great title for a vegetarian cookbook. Um, it literally means a lot in a little in Latin. Um, the... Torah explicitly considers the power gradient. Under normal conditions, employers have power over laborers. The Torah warns employers not to exploit their power. Any Torah-based system should have a special concern for the needs of the least powerful participants. The Mishnah and the later sources balance that concern with awareness in situations in which the employee has power over the employer. The Mishnah and later sources do say that the employee has to work, has to do the work he's assigned to or she's assigned to. Um, The one system that I think it's clear the Torah does not subscribe to is the hyper-capitalist, libertarian economic system formulated by Milton Friedman, who says that in corporations, of course, the ancient world hardly knew from corporations, but in corporations, the manager has a fiduciary responsibility to the shareholder, the owner and does not have any such responsibility to the customers, the workers. The Well, let's stop at workers, because I'm supposed to be talking about employment law. He says workers are like raw materials. They constitute a cost for the business. Managers must put in their own work to make sure that the business does not give more to the workers than absolutely necessary on behalf of the benefit of the shareholders. So he's got to keep labor costs as low as possible. So says Milton Friedman. In Friedman's defense, Friedman says, as low as possible within the moral and ethical concerns of society and within the law. I think... Friedman himself did not anticipate how difficult it is to maintain the moral standards of the community and the law when the owners, the shareholders, become so wealthy that they can engage in vast public relations efforts to change the community's sense of what is moral and can engage in vast 
to put it crudely, bribery schemes so that elected officials will pass laws that further empower the shareholders to the cost of everybody else. I saw a book on business ethics once that said, if you have a company with well-paid employees that makes a good product, that it sells at a reasonably low price, and the product is actually higher quality than the competitors who are charging just as much or even more, that's wonderful. And at some point, the company has a moral obligation to the shareholders to monetize that good reputation. So it should start manufacturing products that cost more than the competitors and can get away with that because it's um, good reputation. And it should, um, if it doesn't monetize those good things, it's just wasting that good reputation and it's depriving the shareholders of their financial interest in the good reputation. That's ethics in a hyper-capitalistic system. That's not the way the rabbis saw it. The ideal of commerce in rabbinic thought consists of transactions in which both sides feel satisfied. Both sides look back at the commercial transa transaction and feel that they have benefited. It's not a competition to win and force your interlocutor to lose. It's a competition in which each side get what, gets what it wants. That's the ideal. Of course, the rabbis recognize that there's competition and fighting and losers. But the goal is a uh, transactions in which both sides benefit. Hence the laws of Ona'ah. Prohibitions against overcharging your customers. If you have a fungible item that has a real no price, you charge that price, not more. Or if you know that someone is selling an item and doesn't realize what it's worth, you tell the seller that you're ready to pay the real price. And Ona'at Tivarim. In a conversation, the same thing applies to a conversation. If you have a conversation with somebody, your goal isn't to win, to belittle the other person, leave the other person diminished. If you do that, if you say, remember that you once said something stupid, remember that you're only a convert or that you once committed many averot, uh, sins and now you're more saying now you're more pious but we remember you if you do things if you say things to make people feel bad you win the conversation and you transgress against what the rabbis see as as uh, law um hence in staka when your brother becomes poor well we saw that also in employment law the employee is your brother uh, not like Cain and Abel, your brother that you want to do good to. Ideally, your employment relationship is such that the employer and the employee each feel like we um, we both got a fair shake out of this. 
And in the most extreme formula of this, do not take revenge. Lotikom, a verse of Leviticus, the Talmud Yerushalmi on that verse says, you know what taking revenge against another person is like? It's like if you had a hammer in your right hand and you were hitting something and by mistake you hit your left hand and injured your left hand. And then you put that hammer in your left hand and used it to bang your right hand as revenge against the injury to your left hand. Well, from a societal point of view, you almost could say from a God's eye point of view, when we take revenge against each other, we are injuring other people, but we're really doing something stupid. Really, we are, all of us, part of a society, and our goal is not ideally to win. Our goal is to live in a society where everybody prospers. Okay, now I'm ready for questions. Observations. Perfect. Attacks. Rabbi Finkelman. Friends, we have time for one or two questions. If you want, you can go ahead and unmute yourself or raise your hand and I can unmute you. Thank you so much. Perfect. I have some questions from um, the Zoom on our live feed, if that's okay with you, Rabbi Finkelman. Yeah, sure. sure. Thank you. One of the questions is, uh, does uh, labor law acquire or change or modify during Shemitah year when land is sold, temporarily sold to workers? During Shemitah year, the land is ideally left fallow. So there are limits on you can't hire workers to do, you should not be, it would be a prohibition to hire workers to do things to improve the land or plant crops or harvest crops in ways that the Torah forbids. And owners in, in the uh, clear formulation of the law ought to allow strangers to come onto their property to collect um, their produce. And I have seen in this neighborhood in Beit Shemesh uh, a grapevine with a sign in front of it saying, this is a Shemitah year. Anybody who wants to should come onto our property and collect those grapes. I don't know if that answered the question. Thank you so much. Okay, um, Isaac has a question. Go ahead. Um, I was wondering if labor laws like this are the same for non-Jewish workers. An excellent question. We saw in one of the verses it said, Ger v'toshav. So clearly that one applies to a Ger Toshav, who is a non-Jew, and the um, halachic sources have... Plenty to say about which kind of non-Jew could qualify as a Gertoshav. Somebody who officially went before a Beit Din and said, 
I will not worship idols. Or maybe somebody who officially went before a Beit Din and said, I will keep the seven commandments of the children of Noah, the Noahide commandments. Or maybe uh, people who, by their own religious faith, should be keeping the seven commandments, such as observant Muslims. Or maybe even, possibly, in the formulation of Rabbeinu Anachim HaMeiri, people who generally are good people uh, and whose religious commitments, whatever they are, encourage them to be good people. They are, in his formula, people who are gadur bedat, limited or defined by their faith. And I left out one more possibility. Um, oh, yes, the Sefer Achinuch. Characteristically, when we come across mitzvot that say we have a special need to be good to our Jewish employees, friends, colleagues, characteristically says, um, and if you recognize that this law by Torah law requires you to show this kindness to Jews, you would look for opportunities to show simple, similar kindness to others if possible. Perfect. How's Thank that? you so much, Rabbi Finkelman. It's been an honor to learn with you. Uh, what a privilege to spend our morning, your afternoon, um, learning such great Torah. We were really looking forward to this. Uh, of course, labor law is, is a huge importance to Uri Litzedek, and we, we're just so honored to have you um, teach such a great class. Thank you so much for all of you who are tuning in and listening. Uh, we look forward to empowering each and every one of you with some great classes. Again, thank you so much, Rabbi Finkelman. You're quite welcome, and I apologize to the stuff I didn't get to. This is interesting stuff out there. Um, one more sentence, if I can sneak it in. Sure. Uh, the, um, the employee is required to pay the salary. He is not guilty of failing to pay the salary if he doesn't have the money. But what does doesn't have the money mean? Does he have to sell everything he owns? Uh, I think about that in terms of pension plans that are underfunded. The company has the money, but it wants to use it for something else. Uh, cities that escape from bankruptcy by not paying pensions. Hmm. That was we agreed to pay the salary years in the future, and then we didn't that we arrange not to have the money. Anyway, I just wanted to bring that up. Uh, have a good early afternoon. I'm having a good evening. Thank you so much. Take care. Thank you.